Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wouters and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me. and I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. This is the last and quite possibly the creepiest of all. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic with Keith Krantz, Molly Pittman, and Ralph Burns. Welcome back to episode number 84. And today we've got a special guest, founder of Digital Marketer, Mr. Ryan Dice. Last week, Ralph and I, we had a five-day event, Facebook ad certification event, and Ryan did a presentation at our event. And he pulled out some notes from his Evernote file on his phone. And before he went into kind of a hot seat, he's like, you know, I've got these seven questions I ask myself before I finish any piece of of sales copy or copy for any advertising. And so he went through these things and it was it was mind boggling. It was awesome. So Molly reached out and she's like, hey, do you think you'd come on the podcast and talk about some of these things? So, Ryan, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, And if you're listening right now, you're going to love this stuff. But before we get into it, you guys, traffic and conversions coming around the corner. Holy smokes. Just a few weeks away. There is smoke and it is holy. Yes. (laughs) We are officially one month away, so no one panic. But uh, we are closing the door on tickets in a week or two. So if you want to come check it out, it is your last chance. So Traffic and Conversion Summit.com, go check it out. And Ralph and I are going to be speaking a couple different times, one on Facebook video ads and another one on how to grow an agency. So hopefully we'll see you all there, as many of you as possible. Other than that, let's get into some good stuff. Ryan, uh, so what's up with these seven things? It's funny. I really get to dive in and and just binge read over the holidays. I I don't know if you guys get to do that also, but it's one of my favorite things about, you know, taking a really long break between like Christmas and New Year's and I'll get to just read and power through a bunch of books. I was able to go back and read some of my old favorites, you know, read some new favorites. And and I went back and I read Robert Cialdini's work. And I first read Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, as a college student. And I remember thinking then like, wow, this is pretty powerful stuff. It was in a psychology class, funny enough. And he released a new book called persuasion that I just thought was really great. I I went back and and reread 
some of the Wizard of Ads books that, that my friend Roe Williams wrote. And a theme that kept coming up again and again and again across all these different books that have been written at different points, you know, over the last few decades. I mean, one of the books that I read was was Ogilvy on advertising. David Ogilvy, one of the most famous, you know, ad men, like his theory on advertising, written back in the, you know, in the in the 60s, right? A theme that that kept coming up again and again and again. And I'm sure it was always there, but this idea of how do you draw the focused attention from your prospect? So often when we're writing copy and when we're creating marketing pieces, we just start with the assumption that people are going to see this and read it, or they're going to see this and they're going to watch it. And a quote that Robert Cialdini had in his book, Persuasion, was nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it. And that was Daniel Kahneman who said that. But if you think about that, nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you are thinking about it. So as humans, we are taught to believe that that which is in front of us, that which is is focal, that which is salient, that, that which is top of mind is really important, even if it isn't. It's one of the reasons that, that you guys talk about retargeting so much, because we know that when you're running retargeting ads and people keep seeing your ads over and over and over again, even if you're just showing that ad to them and a small group of people, they're thinking, wow, this brand is, is a really big deal. It's really important. So I just started asking myself, you know, how do we do that? How do we draw focused attention from our prospects? And as I was going through doing all the research, I came up with a list of seven questions that I ask myself really before I finish any piece of copy or before I, I, I roll out any ad or even an email. And I don't have to have a good answer to all seven questions, but what I find is if I can answer at least one or two of them effectively, then I'm going to have a much more powerful piece of marketing, a much more powerful piece of copy, a much more powerful ad because it's actually going to get viewed, right? And that's the biggest thing of all. You know this, I mean, Molly, when, when we're writing email copy here at Digital Marketer, one of the ways that I improve, whether it's you know your copy or my own copy or a new writer's copy, is I'll go and I'll just lop off the top two paragraphs because invariably there's a right. really brilliant idea buried in there somewhere. And I do that too, and you probably do that as well. So just thinking about how are we going to draw that focused attention? How are we going to make sure that our brand, our message becomes focal, that it becomes you know, obvious that it begins to kind of permeate the mind? That's the big thing. That was my big realization. Yeah. And these seven questions will hopefully help you do that no matter what you're doing. Like we always say, it doesn't really matter what buttons you click inside of Facebook. You know, We can teach you what we do. But if your offer is bad, if your marketing message is bad, it, it really doesn't matter. We've been in so many situations with new clients where they're not having great success. And a lot of them are clients that are very successful, but their Facebook ads are not doing that well. 95 times out of 100, it's dialing into the stuff that Ryan's going to talk about right now. And so to really win, this is it. And most people, man, it's just, it's tough to get that across to people, but this, this is the most important part. And if you're going to integrate any of the seven things here from this show, I mean, if you've got more than one, you're doing pretty well. And you're probably going to be able to turn around an underperforming campaign into something that really performs. So you guys ready for me to dive in? You want to go on question number one? Yeah, Let's yeah. Do it. Let's do it. All right. So the first focusing question, again, that I ask myself anytime I'm writing copy or, or at the end before I click send is how do we make our offer appear novel, unique, and distinctive? That's question number one. How do we make the offer appear novel, 
unique and distinctive. Now, this is really, really easy if the offer happens to be novel, unique, or distinctive, right? If you truly have something brand new, if you're truly releasing something that the market has never seen, then you get this, right? You get this. But what do you do if they have seen it before? Or what do you do if you're selling a commodity? I know one of our best open rates for when we're talking subject lines is just to put something like major announcement, colon, you put major announcement, colon, people are going to open it. Even if they don't really care what the announcement is, you know, cable news has figured this out breaking, right? You'll see at the bottom of the thing, breaking news, right? We all want to know what's the new, what's the novel, what's, what's the unique. And this is, you know, if you want to go all the way back to biology and why we feel this way, I mean, typically the new is trying to kill us. So we're, you know, we're taught to pay attention to something that's new. If it's unfamiliar, it's going to, again, capture our gaze. It's going to draw that focused attention. Now, if you have something that's new, great. If you don't, you know, ask yourself, what's a way that you can make it feel more new? You know, what's a way that you can make it new? What's a, what's an angle that you can take? Or thinking about what's going on in the news today. How can you attach your product to something that is novel, unique, and distinctive, even if it's an old idea? All right, so that's the first question, right? Can we make it appear or is it novel, unique, and distinctive? Question number two, how can we make our plan seem simple? How can we make whatever it is that we have to offer seem simple and easy to understand? This is so, so, so important. And it's something that I mess up all the time. I got to give credit to my buddy, Donald Miller over at StoryBrand for really hammering this through my brain. Like, you know, the, the curse of knowledge. What seems simple to us is not simple to our customers. You know, what seems like such an obvious and compelling idea to us isn't that obvious to them, right? So we need to make it simple. And, and this is critical because when we grasp something quickly and effortlessly, we not only like it more, but we ascribe more validity and worth to it. When we grasp it, when we understand it, we don't just like it, but we believe that it's more worthy. That's how arrogant we are as human beings. It's like, well, if I understand it, then it must be true. And that's why things like rhythm and meter and rhyme can make messages more consumable, right? Let's go all the way back to the O.J. Simpson trial. You know, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit, right? Glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Well, I guess he's, you know, not guilty. It worked. (laughs) And this is really hard to do because what it means is sometimes you got to pull back on your claims, right? It means that you have to not explain every little nuance and detail of the product, which is really, really hard if it's your baby. Uh, I know with Digital Marketer HQ, I want to explain all the all the ways in which, you know, we've got our LMS so that you can do the testing and the tracking and this and that. Really what people want when I was talking to them, it's like, oh, you're a marketing manager? Cool. If you have Digital Marketer HQ, we'll train your marketing team so you don't have to. They don't care about the details, right? So how do you make it seem simple and easy to understand? So those are the first two, right? Novel, unique, distinctive. Simple and easy to understand. Whether you're invoking rhythm, meter, rhyme, there's something about it that people go, cool, I get it. You know, I completely understand it. This is one of the things that my business partner, Perry Belcher, is better at than anybody else. And he calls it country boy logic. (laughs) He's like, I don't get all fancy with, you know, with this and that. Like, I just kind of tell it like it is. But if you think about, you know, our, our new president, right? Really simple concepts, 
If you think about every hit, major hit song, go back and listen to them. You know, Google, you know, the top 100 most popular songs of all time and then listen to the chorus. You'll find it's made up of single syllable words. You know, we as humans don't just like things that are simple. We ascribe more worth and validity to them. So if you can't be new, at a bare minimum, be simple. All right. You guys ready for question number three? Sure are. Question number three, what's an opening question I can ask that when answered by the reader, by the viewer, by the listener, will trigger a desire for consistency that will drive a sale or action? This is a little bit complicated, so I'll say it again and then unpack what it means. So what's an opening question I can ask or that can be asked in the copy that when answered will trigger a desire for consistency that will drive a sale or action? Robert Cialdini talked about this in Persuasion. I thought it was a really great example. There was this uh, survey company, and it's a company that, that big brands will will pay them to basically send people with clipboards out to the street and go, hey, you mind taking a survey, right? And you know, you're almost always like, no, I, I really don't want to, or it's a little bit awkward. Like, uh, no, I don't want to. I'm running away from you. Yeah, exactly. You're crossing <laughs> the other side of the street. Well, they changed the question they would ask. Because again, you know, do you mind taking a survey? Yes, I do. I, I, I don't have time. Like there's a million ways to answer that where it doesn't, again, draw focus attention. It's, it's cliche and it's easy to disregard. And again, remember the goal with these questions is to draw focused attention. So they changed it up and they said, pardon me, do you consider yourself to be a helpful person? Do you consider yourself to be a helpful person? Now, that's a question that when asked, you really can't say no. When asked, you're sitting there thinking like, uh, yes, <laughs> that question when answered, then they're able to say, oh, great. If so, like we, I could really use your help. You see, I'm trying to get answers to this survey and it would really mean a lot to me if you could help out. When they did that, the number of surveys that they were able to get, their basic conversation to conversion rate went up 70%. Wow. By asking people, because again, it's a question that when answered triggers this need for commitment and consistency. Okay. Yes, I'm a helpful person. And because I'm helpful, I'm going to remain consistent to that. And I'm going to help you with your survey. There was another company that they tried this out in grocery stores. So they were, they were trying to get people to do taste test samples for a new sports drink. And they asked, do you consider yourself to be adventurous? Right. And when they ask that question, you know, yeah, of course, because who wants to be like, no, I'm freaking boring and kind of, you know, a coward. Right. No. Yeah. I'm adventurous. Sure. OK, cool. Then you want to try this new sports drink because it's like packed with sugar and like, ugh. so it doesn't make any sense. Right. But that question, you know, you want to think and, and you don't always want to open every email with the question. Right. This can be overdone. But if you're trying to figure out how am I going to lead off with my copy? Asking an opening question that when answered will trigger a desire for consistency that will then drive a sale or action is a good way to do this. I did set the start of a sales letter for a recent promotion that we did for our workshop on let's build a predictable selling system. So let me ask you a question. Is your product or service good? Does it work? If you put it in the hands, if you put it in front of the right person, will they get a good response? If you answered yes to that question, then I want to show you how to sell a whole lot more of it. Right. So the thing of like, is your product or service good? Well, everybody pretty much, unless they know they're selling junk, in which case I don't want to help them anyway, uh, pretty much everybody's gonna be like, yeah, it's good. You know, so, okay, if it's good, then great. I want to help you sell a lot more of it. So now if you believe it's good, then you should want to sell more and I'm here to help you do it.
It's not just a question, right? It's not going to work just because you're asking a question. It has to be the right question. And a good example of this, I was at an ad writing class this week and I wrote an ad and it was about ending the war between sales and marketing. And I opened up and I said, do you want to end the war between sales and marketing? Well, you might, but it assigns no responsibility to you. It could work, but it wasn't great. Then we took it a step further. Are you brave enough to end the war? Question mark. So we were assigning some sort of responsibility, right? Well, no one wants to say that they're not brave enough. So I think that's a great example of what you're saying. And it's not just asking a question. Like you said, what's a question you can ask that leads to the sales conversation that you want to have? Yeah, I love that. And I was going to ask you, Ryan, how to transition here. And you guys are already starting to answer it. But the one question is like this case, could you lead it with, do you consider yourself brave? Question mark. And then maybe you, you lead into it. Are you brave enough to end the war? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, questions are compelling. Questions in and of themselves will will draw some attention. You know, if you go out there and you just ask a general question, a general trivia question, right? That in and of itself can engage, but it engages the mind. It doesn't necessarily engage heart. It doesn't necessarily engage identity. When you ask someone, you know, are you brave? Are you helpful? You know, is what you're doing good? right? Now we've gone that next level and we're not simply asking a question for the sake of a question that kind of engages the mind. Now we're asking a question that when they answer it, even if they're just answering in their own mind, they're saying something about themselves, okay? And what they're saying about themselves, if that informs the next action that you would like for them to take, then all the better. Some people might listen to this and be saying like, well, this seems really, really, really manipulative, right? And obviously you can take this too far. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that you necessarily, you know, attempt to pull Jedi mind tricks on people. I think as a survey person going up to folks and saying, Hey, do you consider yourself to be a helpful person? Like, I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, that that's just there. I think there's better ways to get at that. I think it's an instructive example, but to say to somebody, Hey, is what you're doing good? You know, yes right. or no. If they're sitting there really questioning, I don't know. I'm, I don't want to help them. You know, saying like, do you consider yourself to be brave? Yeah, I do. Cool. Then are you brave enough to end you know, one of the biggest schisms that has been in business from kind of the dawn of business, kind of this, this schism between sales and marketing, right? Yeah, you know, I think I am. You know, prior to that, they weren't really considering it as much. But when you engage not just their mind, but you in- engage their heart and their identity, now they want to take action. Now they want to do something to show that they really, really mean it. And Molly's example is the brave relates directly to the next question. It doesn't come across manipulative at all because it's so related. Right. Yeah. Certainly manipulation in and of itself shouldn't be the goal. What we are trying to do, though, is we are trying to capture the attention of someone who wasn't planning on giving it to us at that moment in time. So in a sense, we are manipulating their attention. You know, potters are manipulating clay. So if you're doing it with a mind to try to extract something from someone that they wouldn't want to happen, then that's bad. If you're exposing them to something that's going to better their life, then I think that's a good thing. They they should be disrupted. Uh, they were probably just going to watch TV or do something stupid. <laughs> Cat videos. Exactly. <laughs> uh, exactly. All right. Number four. Yep. Question number four. How do we pre-expose our audience to a concept linked to the desired emotional stimulus? How do we pre-expose our audience to a concept linked to the desired emotional stimulus. And Molly did this recently in an ad that we ran at Digital Marketer. Before I learned this concept, she did it. And that's what's so cool is once you hear these concepts, you're going to begin seeing them. 
really smart, savvy, you know, ad writers, marketers, persuaders, they do this intuitively. They do it naturally. But once you're armed with these, you know, you can now be deliberate. So when we're thinking, how do we pre-expose our audience to a concept linked to a desired emotional stimulus? We have to ask ourselves, what is the, the desired emotional stimulus? In other words, how do we want our audience to feel such that they want to make a purchase? Like what is, what is their emotional state, you know, really need to be if they're going to be here and if they're going to want to make a move and, and make a purchase. And I'll give an example that Robert Cialdini gave, and then I'll give the one that, that Molly did that many of you may have seen. He talked about this experiment that was run, basically taking advantage of, you know, machismo middle-aged men. So what they would do is they would have a young, attractive girl walk up to a middle-aged guy on the street and say, hey, these ruffians over here, and point to a group of guys, just took my cell phone. Will you help me get it back from them? And in most cases, the guy looked at the girl, looked at the group of guys, and went, yeah, no. You seem cute. You seem nice, but those guys will kill me. So sorry, you lost your phone. You might want to call the cops. <laughs> so they got a good control. Then they wanted to see, well, how can we increase that, right? How can we increase the odds that, you know, that, that these guys will say, you know, yes, and actually help out that they'll go against their natural tendencies. And, and so what they did is they had a different woman come up to this guy before and say, excuse me, can I get directions to Valentine street? Can I get directions to Valentine Street? Now, Valentine Street was simply a street in the area. She didn't say anything about Valentine's Day or anything like that. She said, can I get directions to Valentine Street? But that mention of Valentine was an exposed concept. It exposed a concept that exists in you know Western culture, this idea of Valentine's Day equaling romance, equaling sex, equaling man help woman, man get sex from woman kind of thing, right? Like these very kind of carnal things. And instantly the number of guys who were willing to throw themselves into harm's way on behalf of a stranger that walked up to him next to say, hey, can you help me get my phone back from these ruffians went up dramatically. I forget the exact number. So crazy. Now, what was it maybe that just two women approached him, right? Maybe it was the two women. So they, they had another, you know, they, they did the test again. And, and the first woman went up and said, hey, can you give me directions to Main Street? You know, which was a concept unlinked to Valentine's. And now when the second woman walked up asking for help to get her phone back, it was right back to the control stage. So the mere mention of Valentine Street pre-exposed the audience to a concept linked to the desired emotional stimulus, which in this case was romance. And this is why in every single perfume ad, they're basically selling sex because that's why people buy perfume and cologne, right? That's mm. the desired emotional stimulus. So how do you do it in your market? Well, Molly did something recently that I knew was brilliant and I, and I knew it was going to work and it did work but I didn't know why it worked. She ran an ad when the early bird sale was about to go away for Traffic Conversion Summit. And I'm guessing we're gonna run it again. If not, Molly, we should. But as Traffic and Conversion Summit is selling out, she ran an ad where the image in the ad was kind of the low battery warning on the iPhone. You know, if you've ever pulled your phone out of your pocket and it's kind of down and it's like 10% battery life and it's the battery on your phone and it's just the little sliver of red, you know, it's an image that if you own an iPhone, you've seen it. And the emotion that you feel in that is the sense of urgency. Like, oh my God, no, I've got to plug it in. Now, what does your phone running out of juice 
have to do with the fact that this event is nearly sold out. They have nothing to do with one another. Just like Valentine Street has nothing to do with protecting a woman, but it exposes people to the idea, to the emotional stimulus, which in this case is nervous energy, urgency, right? Need to act now. So just by using this commonly known mental image, your visual image in this case, it exposes the desired emotional stimulus, which causes the action to take place. So cool. I, I, I never forget when Molly texted that image. I mean, Ralph is going crazy showing everybody in the, you know, the agency team and stuff. And I can't believe it, how this is so timely where Molly was doing this right before you were kind of building this list. That means you got somebody good on that team over there, digital marketer. Lily, she knows what the heck she's doing. <laughs> yeah, I think this can be applied across the board, though. And if you really take a step back and think about what feeling and what emotion am I wanting to portray or am I wanting this person to feel, okay, what is something in day-to-day life that makes me feel that way? And like Ryan said, it doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do with the ad or what you're selling or what you're trying to get them to do, but it's, okay, what emotion, what's something that, that they already have associated, you know, with this particular emotion that I'm trying to create with this ad? So we took that a step further and we ran an ad. We were wanting people to click to chat and Facebook message with us. So it's just a quick little video ad that has the little typing bubble, right? So when you open a text and you see someone's typing, again, same same thing. In your phone, you know, when you're texting somebody, it'll show the bubble of them thinking about typing. iMessage or Facebook Messenger does this and you know oh, this person is actually having a conversation with me. So that's a little bit less emotional, but it really portrays, you know, what we're wanting this person to understand about the ad. So I think this is very important, especially in your ad creative, whether it's an image or a video, whether on TV or Facebook or YouTube, it doesn't matter. Thinking about, you know, through my copy and visually, how am I making this person feel? And how can my creative portray that? And what items or different thoughts or different things in our current culture can I use to shortcut that? Because it probably would have taken me, you know, five to 10 sentences of copy to really induce that scarcity feeling that that iPhone battery image could do all on its own. All right, let's do number five. Okay, so number five is along the same lines. So in, with number four, we we basically were saying, how do we pre-expose our audience to the desired emotional stimulus? With number five, we're asking what mental links and associations, in other words, kind of nostalgia, do we want to tap into and positively associate to our offer? Now we're really tapping into not just emotions, but we're tapping into memories. So it's a much deeper feeling. If you've ever been listening to a song and it almost made you cry, it wasn't the sadness of the song, right? It brought you back to probably a moment in your life when you were there. That's what nostalgia is all about. And the reason that happens is because we as human beings create thought through association. Okay, that is how thought occurs. It is by associating one thing with another thing. It's, I know to fear this because it kind of reminds me of this other thing that hurt me at one point in time, so I'm going to fear it too. So this idea of association is big. So how can you associate 
your product, your service with a known common experience. That's what we're really asking in question number five. What mental links and associations do we need to tap into and positively associate to our offer? You see great ads do this all the time, okay? Great ads will do this all the time. They will tap into the memories and the feelings of an entire group of people and then associate a product to that. That's basically the way that Coke has been selling brown sugar water for decades. <laughs> they have been associating this product to people's lives, whether it's family or friends or good times, right? And even if you never had that exact experience, it brings you back. So to do this, you've got to say, what are the positive associations that my audience has experienced? And now how do I bring them there? A good way to do that is through metaphor. Again, given a plug for my buddy Roy Williams, he said, when introducing a novel or complex idea, the most important messaging decision you will make is your choice in a metaphor. So when you make a metaphor, you are associating one thing to another thing that appears that it isn't relevant. Imagery is another way to do this, right? If you can have an image, even if it's just kind of there subtly in the background, but if that image kind of harkens back to, you know, to a memory, you know, or, or to, to something that happens or to somewhere that you would like to be speaking to that positive end result, then what you're doing is you are linking, you are mentally linking, you're mentally associating your product with this positive experience, either past experience or desired future experience. So again, what yeah. mental links and associations do we need to tap into and positively associate to our offer? This is beyond just emotion. Emotion is powerful. If we can associate it to a real lasting memory or to a deep seated felt desire, now we have something. Ryan, you know, for example, we've been running an ad and it's for our customer avatar worksheet. And we're just wanting people to, to download the template but the ad is the guess who game that everyone has memories playing or or knows what that means, right? And that image has done really well because, and people will comment like, oh, I loved that game. I remember that game. And we're taking them back to this, you know, childish, carefree time in their life that puts them at ease. I think that any sort of metaphor, especially if your product is hard to explain, is very, very effective. So for example, explaining Digital Marketer Lab as you know Netflix for digital marketing, that's a really simple way to explain the product. I saw an ad the other day and it said, you know, Airbnb for dogs. Well, immediately I knew what that was, but if they would have taken, you know, four or five sentences to explain it, they might have lost my attention. So I think even the simplest way of using a metaphor to explain your product and copy, that can be incredibly effective. Yeah. I mean, remember even during the hot seat after Ryan went through this, and then he spent another hour, over an hour going through just amazing hot seats. And I got a text message. So, so Corey Chiazen, who was there, uh, they're already executing on this, but basically he used the yard sale, what you suggested. And I got a text message, a follow-up uh, asking if I'm ready for you know yard sale prices related to their industry. And they're already executing it. And just that's the kind of stuff. Yeah, it was a really complex part of the legal code, right? And, and selling to people who are doing a, a very specialized form of, of investing, right? But we dumbed it down to, well, really, it's kind of like a yard sale. So 
you know, you, you've gone to a yard sale or, or a garage sale. And even if you haven't found anything good, you know, of somebody who did right, they're digging through and, and they wind up seeing, you know, an old Beatles album that's worth a bunch of money or, you know, finding a, you know, an old toy still in the you know package that's worth hundreds or thousands of dollars. And they're able to buy it for 25 cents, right? There's these positive mental associations, whether you experience it, whether you know someone experienced it, or you could imagine yourself experiencing it. It's a positive mental association that if you can link your product to, then those same positive feelings are transformed to the product and it's instantly understood. So you also get, you know, what we talked about back in question number two, right? It's grasped more easily and therefore it's trusted more rapidly. So that's question number five. You ready for question number six? Let's do it. Number six. Question number six, how can we use open loops, also known as the Zagarnik effect, to hold attention and leverage through the close? So how do we use this idea of, you know, creating an open loop or a cliffhanger? Mystery is another way that you can do this, right? What's a compelling mystery that you can leverage at the beginning of a message to hold their attention? Uh, this is something that that TV has realized, I mean, I was a big fan of the TV show Lost back a few years ago, and, and it was a really popular show in part because they would never answer one question before they asked four or five more in the same episode, right? Soap operas are famous for this, right? Soap operas are famous for like right before the big thing happens, like it fades to black or it's see you next time, right? So this idea that we need closure right, we need cognitive closure, was developed by uh, a psychologist named Zagarnik. And, and she was uh, actually was eating lunch with a group of, of other colleagues one day. And they noticed that there was this waiter that had this almost uncanny ability to remember everyone's order. And, you know, we've all been to restaurants, right, where everybody at the table is throwing different combinations of their order at a waiter and they're not, not writing anything down and, and they managed to remember it all. So they had this waiter and, and they were wondering, like, what is it about this person that, that makes them to where they can memorize everybody's order? You know, it's, it's amazing. So they were going to ask the waiter about it. And what they realized was that the waiter didn't actually remember their order anymore. So that, you know, that once the, the waiter delivered their meal, came back around, Hey, how's everything going? You know, they're asking him like, Hey, by the way, how do you remember? How'd you remember that I wanted, you know, this and this and this without writing it down? The waiter's like, honestly, I, I don't remember even what you ordered. And what they realized is before you have closure, the brain keeps it open, the brain's hyperactive, and it can hold attention on a, on a subject, even a fairly complex one, really well. So the waiter was able to keep in his mind this, you know, multiple person complex order. But the second that the plate hit the table, boom, cognitive closure, job done, erase Okay, erase, clear. We no longer have to keep that in our, you know, random access memory. Clear it. Let's not burn any calories. Let's move on to the next thing. So if you want to hold attention, you can't allow cognitive closure until the very end when it comes time for the close. So if you're going to leverage story in your marketing and in your messaging and in your advertising, that's great. But don't tell the story and then go into your sales message or into your marketing message. You got to tell the story, then weave into your message, you know, begin to tell the story, then kind of hint at it. And then at the very end, you need to close off the story. You need to tell them the rest of the story. If you close the story off, you know, right there from the beginning, they're done, brain off, I'm no longer paying attention to you. So how do you open loops? How do you tell mysteries? How do you leverage story? But the cognitive closure needs to occur at the point of sale, it needs to occur when the close happens.
All right, so open loops, the Zagarnik effect. Have mystery, leave some cliffhangers, open loops. And uh, all right, let's move on to number seven. Cool. So question number seven, this is the last and quite possibly the creepiest of all. <laughs> so the best. <laughs> Incidentally, what I just did there was a bit of an open loop. It, just, <laughs> just if you're paying attention at home, right? So this is the last and possibly creepiest of all. How can we create a visual or mental portal for the prospect to pass through, which will make them more open to new opportunities, right? How can we create a visual or mental portal for the prospect to pass through to make them more open to new opportunities. Now this again, like I said, gets a little bit weird, but the reality is, is you probably experienced it. You know, you're sitting on the couch and, and you get up cause you need to go into another room to get something. And then, so you get up and you walk into the new room and when you get there, you're like, why the heck did I come here? What was I looking for? I don't, I don't remember. There is something kind of magical, the way that our brains work. There is something fascinating and magical about moving from one room to another, passing through a door, right? It really does change the way that we think. It is a it is an attention reset. And this has been proven and studied in dogs. Again, Robert Cialdini talked about the very famous Pavlov's dogs experiment. Everybody knows, you know, you've probably heard about Pavlov's dogs, right? The idea that he was able to associate a ringing bell and, and to get dogs to salivate. But what a lot of people don't realize, if you go back and read that story, is there was another kind of side conclusion. And that was any time that Pavlov would take his dogs into a different room to show another researcher, oh, look at this thing that I figured out. I've, you know, I've trained these dogs because I would ring a bell and then feed them meat. Ring a bell and then feed a meat. Ring a bell and then feed a meat. Now, anytime I just ring a bell, look, they salivate because they've associated bell ringing with meat eating. He would go in and take the dogs into a new room to show it to one of his colleagues. And, and all of a sudden, the dogs wouldn't salivate at the ringing bell, right? It, it no longer had the same effect. And what he realized is that when you change environment, when you move from one area to another, it's a mental reset, now, this is very, very useful if we're trying to get people to take action. Salespeople realize this. Dating people and pickup artists realize this and, and use it for super uncool ways. Uh, but this is something that folks have, have realized for a long, long, long time. If we can get somebody to move from one place to another, they are more likely to make a decision. And that's this notion of portals, right? This idea of passing from one place to another. So you've probably seen this. If you've, you know, watched a product launch or something like that, you've seen the, the marketer driving in his car, right? And there you are in the car and he's explaining some stuff, right? You're riding with them. You know, you're passing from one place to another visually. So the, the image of riding in a car where you're talking to your prospects, that is a type of portal. Pickup artists and, and dating experts and, you know, douchebags throughout the, the world um, <laughs> teach that a good way to increase intimacy uh, with a member of the opposite sex is just to move from one point to another throughout a particular bar or club. You know, so say, oh, hey, let's go over here. I want to introduce my, my friend. Oh, let's now let's walk over here to the bar. Hey, let's go outside and get some fresh air for a little bit. Oh, now let's go on the dance floor and dance. Moving around, even if you're doing it within the same four walls, in and of itself increases intimacy because you're passing through portals together. If you look at art and movies, film. They get this. The best directors in the world get this. They get the idea of portals. One of the most obvious examples of this came from The Wizard of Oz. Uh, when Dorothy is transported from Kansas to Oz in the tornado, right, her house lands and she goes, you know, oh, you know, and, and 
now you're seeing the world through her eyes. It's worth going back and watching as the door swings open and instantly everything changes from black and white to color as she passes from Kansas, the real world, into Oz, right? That passage through the doorway is a portal. So if you as an advertiser can learn to leverage portals, those are visual portals. You can also do it with sound, right? So if you've got background music, maybe you have it change just slightly when you go into your clothes. That that change in sound is a mental portal. Um, we're looking at doing it with a lab offer. So Digital Marketer Lab, Molly mentioned this, our, our membership, one of the ways that we've described it is, you know, you're getting access to our vault of execution plans. So we're going to have a video where you see a vault and then the vault door opens and you're actually passing through into the vault, trying to create a visual portal. So visual, auditory, how do you make it seem like you and your prospect are passing into another place together? Love it. Love it. And when, you're, when he was talking about the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy, so remember, it's not the camera from behind Dorothy. Now that can do that a little bit as well in some cases, but it's basically the camera is her eye. So you're looking out walking through the door as her eyes. I love the example you just said. Can you just real quick explain that a little bit more? So the portal thing with the with the members, I love that. So is it like some kind of a visual thing where they see themselves? Does it move like a cube or how, like a, how does that work? I mean, it's just the idea that you want there to be some change of state, right? So if it's, if it's a video and it's a video of you talking, and so this could be done, let's say you're a local business, right? You're, you know, you're, you're a plumber, Right. Maybe what you say is you start outside of your outside of your building. You say, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Fred the plumber. And, you know, you know, we're really excited. We're doing some great stuff here. But here, come here. Come here. I want you to come inside. I want you to meet some people. And now the camera follows Fred the plumber as he opens the door and goes into the store. That's a portal. Right. We as human beings tend to make decisions after we have moved from one place to another. We are trained to do that. You think about marriage. Right. And the ceremony of marriage, the idea of walking down an aisle, you're walking through a portal of your friends and family. You start at the back behind everyone and you walk through this narrow portal and you get on the other side. And, and if you're the bride, you know, there you are standing on a stage on the other side of the portal with your husband. And when you leave, you exit back through that same portal again and, and you arrive there separately. You leave as husband and wife. Um you know, it goes all the way back to the womb. I mean, not to be overly weird and graphic, but we all come to this world through a portal. Uh, we exit through a hole in the ground. Uh, it mm. is just how we deal with life and death and change. And artists get it. You look at great art, great photography. It's oftentimes, it's an image on the other side. And you can get really, really creepy with this stuff, right? And as now that you've seen it, you'll see it a lot more. Great directors use it. Great artists use it. Songwriters will use it when you you have kind of like the bridge in a song where where it changes just a little bit. That's an auditory portal. So all these little things in here to denote to us as human beings that hey something has changed. What was before is not the same anymore. Therefore, it's okay to act and to pursue a new path. And if you don't give them that visual, auditory, mental cue, then they're less likely to make a change. All right. So just think about it. How how are you going to do that? And it could be visual. It could be really, really subtle. It could be a simple thing of, you know, if you've got a, you know, a, a video message or sales page, right? It, it's maybe it's a background color change. 
it can be really subtle, but there needs to be some type of mental cue that, hey, we're passing into something new together. Uh, it, it's okay to make a change. Yeah, I'm just thinking of a couple examples. A simple way to do that is maybe you have a camera, maybe it's a regular video camera with a crew or it's your selfie video. And then maybe you you turn it around so the camera is not, you, you're just holding the camera. Now it's facing out like a normal camera walking into a room. Or maybe you're going to, from a face to camera for the first 15 seconds to a screen record. And then you got, you, you're looking at you with a selfie or a regular camera. And then all of a sudden you take the, the camera and you point it at your computer, you're zooming in on it. And then you, you transition to a screen flow recording, right? So they can kind of feel that transition, just simple thing like that. You can do this in so many ways without getting super technical. And then I'm sure we will all notice a lot of this stuff more and more. All right. So question number one, uh, how do we make our offer appear novel, unique, and distinctive? Basically, how do we make it appear new? That's the first thing. Uh, Because remember, the goal is focused attention. Focused attention doesn't doesn't matter how great your product is, doesn't matter how compelling your message is. If people don't focus on it, if they don't hear it, if they don't pay attention to it, it's not going to go. So, How do we make our offer appear novel, unique, and distinctive? We focus on the new. How do we make it new? Question number two, how do we make our offer seem simple and easy to understand? We love simple. We love easy to understand. If we understand it quickly and effortlessly, we like it more and we ascribe more validity. So how can we leverage things like rhythm, meter, rhyme, you know, all these things that, you know, the way that like my kids learn their alphabet. It's it's a simplifying mechanism and we like it because of that. So that's question number two. Question number three, what's an opening question that you can ask that when answered will trigger a desire for consistency and drive a sale or action? So what's an opening question that when answered will, will make them want to say, yeah, this is who I am and therefore this is how I'm going to act. So that's that. Do you consider yourself a helpful person? You know, do you consider yourself to be brave? Is your product or service good? What's an opening question that you can ask? Questions draw attention, but the questions that when answered will drive consistent action and specifically a consistent action that's consistent with what you want them to do. That's even better. So that's question number three. Question number four, how do we pre-expose our audience to a concept linked to a desired emotional stimulus? How do we pre-expose our audience to make them feel a certain way, right? How do we link our product or service to the desired emotion? So this is, you know, when Molly ran the ad that had the iPhone battery almost dead to denote that tickets were about to be sold out, right? The emotional stimulus there, urgency. There's an image that denotes urgency, even though it's unrelated. Can you tell me how to get to Valentine Street? Remember Valentine Street, the mention of it made middle-aged men feel more romantic, which made them willing to throw themselves into harm's way for a woman they did not know. All right. So how do we pre-expose and then link our product to the desired emotional state? That's question number four. Question number five, what mental links and associations do we need to tap into and positively associate to our offer? All right. So with question four, we talked about emotional links. With question five, we're talking about mental links. We're talking about memory. We're talking about identity. These mental associations that we want to connect our, our product to, the metaphors that we want to use, the, the memories and the nostalgia that we want to tap into, right? What is that? Thinking about what is a common experience that our market has shared 
that we can link our product to in, in a positive way? That's question number five. Question number six, how can we use open loops, also known as the Zagarnik effect, to hold attention and leverage the close to create that cognitive closure that our brains so desperately desire? You know, and, and here we're talking about things like mystery. We're, we're talking about story, but a story where you don't give up the ending until you're done talking about your product or service, right? That's how we capture, hold attention. That's how we truly leverage story. You don't just tell a story. You tell a story, you talk about the product, you close the story, and the close of the story draws them to the action. Then finally, and most creepily, uh, how can we create a visual or mental portal for the prospect to pass through that when they do makes them open to new opportunities, right? Is it a visual thing? Are we walking with them? Are we showing you know, them passing through a door? Is it a change in background tone and music? Uh, what is the signal that we're giving to make people say, oh, you know, now it's time to make a change, right? We're, we're, we're not just getting focused attention, but we're directing it to the right place. I, I believe that if you ask yourself these questions before you finish writing a piece of copy, before you finish crafting an ad, before you finish uh, drafting an email and click send, I think you're gonna have much more powerful messaging. You're gonna find hooks that you had previously missed or ignored or not capitalized on. And I just think you're gonna make a lot more sales. And if your product or service is good, which I hope it is, then you're gonna make a lot more people happier. So that's what I got. Awesome stuff here. One question real quick too is, do they have to try to get all seven of these? Great question. No, uh, I, I don't know if it's possible. Um, <laughs> and it certainly isn't necessary. I think if you can get one or two, you're gonna be doing a heck of a lot better than your competitors and probably a lot better than you're doing currently. Perfect. Perfect. Love it. All right. Once again, digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast. This is episode number 84. Uh, if you're not going to traffic and conversion, it's traffic and conversion summit.com. Other than that, Ryan, awesome stuff. Thanks for coming on. Thanks again for, for coming out to the event. Molly, thank you too. And we will talk to you guys soon. You've been listening to Perpetual Traffic with Keith Grant, Molly Pittman, and Ralph Burns. For more information and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit digitalmarketer.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening. John Moran here. Q1 is closing and it probably didn't go as well as you'd hoped. I'm sure your agency is telling you that they crushed it, but in reality, it probably crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you, or if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what, go to tier11.com forward slash apply. That's tier11.com forward slash apply. And we'll get set up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make agencies look good.